Hello, welcome to another episode of the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is Thomas McFarlane, who joins me to discuss his book, Lennon and McCartney, Painting with Sound. This book explores the creative dialogue between John and Paul, both with the Beatles and on their own. Uh, and Tom and I discuss the constant connection between Lennon and McCartney, both musically and personally. And through Tom's analysis, we tell the story of this most renowned of songwriting partnerships. Well, Tom McFarlane, hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. We're here to talk about Lennon McCartney, Painting with Sound, your really insightful, excellent book, which found its way into my world uh, a few weeks ago. So thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. The first always obvious question, where did the idea for the book uh, kind of come from? And what made you want to look at Lennon and McCartney in the context that you do in the book? Well, I was thinking about um, the, the idea of a conversation between the two of them. That sort of came out of a conversation I had had about 10 or 11 years ago, uh, where I had sort of fallen into that thing where you're comparing them and rating them against one another. And that, you know, it was sort of interesting, but it didn't really get me anywhere. And so I was increasingly curious about this sort of energy, this dynamic that was going on between them. It's in all collaborations, right? Uh, Then there was Stuart, Stuart Sutcliffe. I was very curious about him and, you know, I was finding out that he was an extraordinarily gifted artist. Uh, and I was curious about because he was a member of the band. So now you have a fine painter who's a member of this band you're talking about. And I wanted to know about his influence on the band and, and on John. Uh, but I guess John and then by extension, the rest of the band. Of course, that led me to the Liverpool Art College where... Uh, all of these wonderful things were going on. And uh, right next door was uh, the Liverpool Institute where Paul and George were attending, right? So it's a wonderful little location there. Uh, and then I just started digging. I was wondering about the uh, 20th century art movement influence that would have been coming through because so many of the teachers there had direct experience with it. And then I was thinking about the dissenters which is kind of like a shadow Beatles, is that, uh, I mean, I, it's interesting we're talking today, uh, it, it's bringing up all of these ideas, you know, that are kind of revisiting things, and I just, my goodness, it's like the, the dissenters are kind of like the spirit of the Beatles in some way, they're, they're sort of, they're dependent on each other, because there you had John, right, and you had Stuart, and Bill Harry, and Rod Murray, right, who were all at the school. They definitely set their course one evening uh, at uh, the, the local watering hole. And then, so I, I actually got to visit that place and uh, went to the Walker Gallery and uh, did research at John Moores University and it all sort of kept building from there. The school is interesting. As you say, it was um, kind of a cultural and a kind of a, a creative hub for all of them. It, it's, it's very central. It's a theme that goes through your book almost up until the modern day. How important do you think that place was in the kind of Lennon-McCartney story? I was coming across accounts of them actually rehearsing there, and we do know that later they were performing there in an early form during lunchtime concerts. They were giving sort of lunchtime concerts for the students. But it seemed to kind of, you know, it was an interesting thing with Lennon because in the research I did, 
it kept coming across that they really liked him uh, at the college, but they didn't know what to do with him. Um, that he was definitely talented, but they didn't know how to help him uh, channel that talent into something productive. So uh, I, I'm not sure. I guess they were successful in a way uh, by perhaps not, not being successful. But uh, it seemed to be a place that was uh, very nurturing for them, even if they, the faculty felt they didn't quite know what to do with, with him. And then, of course, Paul came in through, through that, and George came in through Paul. And you have Stuart there, who's uh, older than John, right? I mean, he's a little bit older than John, and he's, he's been there for slightly longer. I think it was in the Philip Norman book, uh, he talks about a kind of tutorial that was going on that Stuart was running for John, right? And John was in a very kind of tough place at that point uh, as a late teenager, and that he just sort of grabbed onto it and um, was reading like crazy and listening like crazy and studying and talking and all the rest. So um, I think it's interesting, uh, even though they didn't know what to do with them, with him, the place was essential in his development and his growth, and then by extension, Paul and George and, and so on. Absolutely. The book go kind of go, goes through the Beatles recording career and solo careers pretty much chronologically. So I think it's interesting if we look at the different eras and, and, and discuss the the kind of the aspects of their relationship that comes across in the book. The early part of the Beatles career, as most of us will know, is marked by a very close collaboration between Lennon and McCartney. You can sometimes feel the electricity and the music that the two of them had in that. One of John's great phrases, that eyeball-to-eyeball collaboration. You can see them sat at the end of Twin Beds making this thrilling music. Um, from, from writing the book, did you get a sense of why this collaboration worked so well and so quickly? Yeah, one of the things I noticed as I went through it was how evenly matched they were, which is not usually discussed, really. I mean, like I said earlier, people get into different camps and they say, well, this one did this and that. But they were so uh, well suited to one another. And I think that may be why. That may be the source of the electricity that you're describing. This is somebody I can really trust. Mm. This is sort of the right-hand fellow over here or the left-hand fellow over here. You know, uh, John was slightly older, but not by much. And so you had an interesting dynamic going on in the group where he would show up with something and then Paul would respond with something else. And it could be better or, you know, comparable or whatever, you know. So that was a, a tremendous asset. Uh, th again, this evenly matched quality suggested, I think, that they could work separately, which they did. They had done so before. They each had projects going on before. They could always resort to that if they needed to, but that they would come back and be, I think, uh, one of the things I was thinking about was that they were very good editors for one another. That's a very difficult thing to learn I, as, you, as you're writing, creating. It's very exciting when you start off and you say, look what I did, uh, and that's a good feeling. And then later you develop this ability to say, look at this, this is good, I did it. But if I didn't do it, it would still be good, you see. And so you learn how to edit your stuff uh, uh, more powerfully, I guess you could say. And they seem to be doing that for one another. And, and that evenly matched quality seemed to foster a trust where they would say, yeah, no, he's right. I, I say, gotcha, yeah. You know, it's interesting. It never really left them, did it? I mean, as much as things got uh, took their course 
over the career of the band, that ability never really left them. I remember there was a picture, I think it's during the, uh, it's, it's a rather obscure photo during the sessions for Hey Bulldog, I think, that they used for the Lady Madonna video. Hmm. And I think John is, is John playing piano and singing or is he just singing at the microphone and Paul is behind him playing tambourine or something. Paul's just looking at John in this way that's just wonderful. It's just like he's saying, yeah, go, go, keep going, you know. <laughs> And I think you, that that may be a part of what uh, you were describing, that sort of energy, that electricity between them. They just worked it out, found each other as a partner. And since everything was going out under the brand name, there was really no you know, unhealthy competition, I guess, mm. or, or very little of it, perhaps. There's that story that Paul tells where early on, maybe even kind of 61, 62, when there's a suggestion that George might be also interested in writing songs and Paul says that he and John kind of had a maybe a long maybe a brief conversation where no it was only going to be it would always be Lennon McCartney you know they they were clear that even the kind of third part at that point of the mix someone that they were both incredibly close to even he wouldn't be able to enter into that kind of that that arrangement so Mm -hmm. I think yeah as you say they 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 worked each other out and they realized that um What's that great John line from the 1980 interview? He's as good as me. He realised that this is someone that's as good as him, which for John, I suppose, is not something that he said that, that often. Yes. There was a, a, an interview that circulated uh, that was done during the Double Fantasy sessions. The, the interviewer says, uh, so what about Paul? Something like that. And John said, ah, oh, Paul, my dear one. Yeah. And I just always love that because I said, oh, you see, it's not, it's not this battle that's going on it's it's a collaboration it's a cooperation they're, they're like brothers in a way they're working together yeah that's the um robert hilburn interview uh which oh, right. bob gruen is is filmed on uh what was then i suppose a very high-tech kind of video recorder and that's when he says he says um uh, did paul ever surprise you when he brought something in and john just says no you know can you be surprised by your brother I mean, that's and that's true, you know, when it's just that sibling thing, you're just not surprised. So moving through the the recording career, as the Beatles music starts to develop through 1965 and 1966, I think it's fair to say Lennon and McCartney, they develop their own styles a bit more. And the collaboration becomes obviously still very tight at times, but they do become more separate and they become more individual what do you think caused this and and how different would you say their kind of styles are it's interesting i guess you're we're associating john with the rock and roll the high intensity stuff and paul with the ballads and the more uh accessible kind of material but again uh that collaboration you know we can we can try to get at it it's so complex i was wondering about the perception of a discernible personal style and how you could play with that. And so things like If I Fell from John, well, that's got to be a Paul type of song, right? Or I'm Down from Paul, which I know he's famous for the Little Richard covers and so on. But the in the public mind, that would be more of a John style. And then you have Helter Skelter and so on uh, from Paul and Julia from John. So I'm wondering if that's a kind of a subtle part of the the collaboration that they say, okay, now you do that bit there. Okay. Again, being so evenly matched, they could cover both sides of it. 
and say, no, no, you do that one now, okay? And I was thinking of something I'd read about Monty Python and the groups in Monty Python, who were uh, Cleese and Chapman and Jones and Palin, and Idol was sort of uh, more on his own, right? Uh, and I read that sometimes they would parody the other style or they would an attempt to kind of mimic it, maybe just uh, so you'd have a, a Palin Jones sketch that seemed to be like a Cleese Chapman sketch in which name, like, for instance, the cheese sketch and so on, they just name it. And so, you know, this is the Chapman Cleese style. But no, it's being done by uh, Palin and Jones. Although I think Idol was involved in that as well. So it's interesting. So these little techniques, these uh, ways of getting the writing process going. Another one that comes to mind is uh, Bungalow Bill, which is a story song of the kind that's associated with Paul, but here's John doing it. We can speak about the collaboration, but it's extraordinarily subtle. They, uh, in the middle of it, or in the midst of it, try to look for these little techniques, these little approaches that make it more interesting and varied and lead them in interesting directions as well. Do you think there was ever a world where they would have stayed, I suppose that's part of, the, of that kind of creative growth, but that idea of them sitting down to write a song together through 65, 66 becomes at home, they'll write. I mean, I suppose that's logistics in the sense that they lived apart. They weren't living as, as close as they were in that in the early 60s. But John would write a song and then come to Paul and Paul would adapt it. Um, and say, well, change, like you say, change this, don't change that. That's the best bit. Move it on from there. Do you think that that was a natural thing to have happened? Yeah, again, I think it was something they could always kind of go back to, the way they went back to their, their own approach, uh, as I had said earlier, uh, solo approach, because they started off separately. Yeah, they could just say, all right, let's, let's work on this. What do we need? Uh, you know, and still recognizing that the other fellow is associated with this approach and I'm associated with this approach. Uh, let's try to come up with this. One that confuses me in that regard is Day Tripper. Mm. I've always been, I, I think it's, it's credited to the both of them, right? A real collaboration. But I have a very hard time spotting them inside there. I don't know if you've... That's all part of the fun, all, all that kind of stuff. One of the, the bits about your book that I really liked was that you, you write in the book about this, this use of imagery and colour and how that becomes more prevalent into kind of Sergeant Pepper Magical Mystery Tour. Two kind of questions around that. Why do you think that kind of happened? What did that bring into their music? You know, again, it's the, the being at the right place in the right time. The technology at that point was advancing so that you could bring out more color. And, uh, and at the same time, uh, in, in, the, in the musical sounds, at the same time, they were maturing. And realizing that they said, okay, so we can really we can really do something now. What should we do? And they began, in a sense, I think, to draw on some of their early experiences, which were not just necessarily musical, right? John was writing. Paul was very interested in poetry. They were both interested in painting and drawing and so on. And so that seemed to, uh, seemed to influence what they were doing at that point. Uh, they had the technology at their disposal, and they, they tried to see what they, they could, could do with it, you know? There were a lot of albums like that at that time, right? I mean, there are, I'm thinking of Moody Blues. Everyone seemed to be getting into it uh, and recognizing the potential. I guess with uh, Lennon and McCartney and the Beatles, you have very, very, very eclectic approach that comes from their experiences and their talents, you know. Plus you have George Martin and Jeff Emmerich and Ken Scott and <laughs> everybody's there. It's interesting if you've ever uh, visited uh, Abbey Road Studios, 
you know, it was really like a, a laboratory of sound, wasn't it? I mean, they were, that spirit was still there, that experimentation with recording. Good place, right place, right time, and so on. Sergeant Pepper's an interesting one because I think the, as you say, the imagery really comes across in Sergeant Pepper. And I'd be curious to see what you thought. I always find it quite a an English kind of Edwardian sounding album. Um, some of the images that they use, lovely Rita, etc. They're placed very specifically in England. One of the things I had an, an author on the podcast who wrote a kind of a chronological book about what each artist in the 60s was releasing. Um, in 67, Beach Boys and Dylan don't really release anything. Maybe there's that, that, that lack of American influence that obviously they loved through the, the early 60s. Do you think that that kind of comes across more in Sgt. Pepper a little bit? Yeah, I think it's, a, it, it, again, another moment, another opportunity. Uh, and uh, what happened in the wake of Pepper was all you need is love, right? So again, that technology wow, what can we do with this, right? Uh, that was just in terms of the reach and so on. Yeah, I think it does in many ways seem like a response to pet sounds, doesn't it? You know, as much as I admire Brian Wilson, I, I always feel I am neglecting him somehow, that, he's, uh, that his achievement is so remarkable. Yeah, but that was 66. As you said, you were talking about 67, and in a way it's, it's kind of like this big kind of response or echo or wave that comes off of pet sounds and then the Beatles kind of come back okay let's try this now let's see what we can do here and then there's a magical mystery tour which really takes it to the next level you know, mm. and, and uh, I, I knew a lot of people as I was growing up who would favor that album in America it was an album not a double EP and they would favor that over Pepper I don't know if it was for the reasons uh, you mentioned that if uh, Pepper would seem very English to them and less accessible, but somehow they just dove into Mystery Tour. But yeah, again, that that opening, that that moment. Here's a moment. Let's grab it. In fact, that wasn't that the um, the problem for Brian Wilson that he was he was in a similar position but couldn't pull things together fast enough. Mm. And so we get Smiley Smile, but we don't get Smile until many years later. Remarkable stuff, though. It's extraordinary. He didn't have a George Martin, did he? And he didn't have a, a collaborator. So he was always uh, going to struggle. Um, one of the, the biggest kind of canvases, if you if you like, that the Beatles released in their career is the White Album in, in 1968. Um, and obviously, at this point, Lennon McCartney, to a certain extent, are heading in different directions. Mm. Um, but you write, you write quite a lot about the White Album in the book. What are the kind of key moments and, and experiences of the White Album for you? Well, um, it's interesting how important that record is uh, in the overall shape of things, right, for, for their career. It never, it never stops, does it? It keeps coming back. I, you know, I didn't initially hear it when it was released, I forget. I heard the single that came off of it, Revolution and Hey Jude, but uh, I didn't know as much about the album until the 70s when I'd heard bits of it. And then I really delved into it. And I was blown away by the scope of it. So I think I went over the top, completely over the top, not in the book, but in, in conversations with my friends, because I used to say, well, this, uh, this is an extraordinary achievement. It has to be one of the great works of Western civilization, you know. And of course, they were making fun of me for saying that, you know. But it's interesting. I, it keeps coming back. I had, um, this was about, I think, 15 years ago, 
one of my students came up to me uh, and knew I was doing research on the Beatles at that time. And uh, I don't know if he was a composer, but he was because he was writing on his own and he was studying music in school. And he came up to me one day and he said, can I talk with you? I said, yes. He said, the White Album. I said, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> and what struck me about that was that the sense I had that he had discovered it, that there was nobody telling him it was an important album that he needed to appreciate or that it was his parents' favorite record or something like that, you know, his uncle's favorite record, aunts and so on. It, it spoke to him very directly. And so I said, wow, there's really something going on here. And then just a few years ago, again, with the, with the reissue, it was rediscovered once again, right? Uh, I, I don't know. I think um, you mentioned that they're going in different directions. Could we say that it's an attempt to kind of extend the canvas in a way? It, like giving each of them more room in a sense, right? I think I call it a gallery, a large, a large gallery. I talk about it in those terms. And that seemed to work for, for a time there, right? I mean, because you have extraordinary things on there. Dear Prudence. I mean, what is Dear Prudence? It's, it's an electric folk song uh, played in an acoustic a mode, meaning the technique that he's using on guitar, but heavy, extraordinarily heavy. And then you have Paul with Mother Nature's Son, which I think is an extraordinary piece of work. The color, colors that are achieved to that are, are marvelous. I mean, Blackbird is highly regarded, but Mother Nature's Son really knocks me out. But I think the real breakthrough there, and maybe it's a result of everything we're, we were talking about, about extending the canvas, uh, is Revolution 9. I mean... You know, say what you will about Revolution 9, and there are all many different opinions about it, but it's really the Beatles stepping into the avant-garde. And they had done that to an extent, right, with Strawberry Fields, I guess, Pepper, uh, sure, I guess so, on, on the Day in the Life, right, and Magical Mystery Tour. But uh, here they're going right in. You know, say what you will, uh, some people criticize it, there's different ways of looking at it, you know, that he's a... Uh, pop songwriter who's known for being very direct, but he's going into um, this type of music that's more ambiguous. And so there's a tension there, but he has Yoko with him and uh, he has the corporate uh, power of the Beatles behind him. It's really marvelous. I mean, it's a, it's a really, it's a very interesting listen and it really works. It makes the, uh, the arc of the entire album sort of, sensible. You sing, yes, of course, and then good night happens and we just kind of <laughs> close down for the evening, you know. There's that great line in Ian McDonald's Revolution in the Head book where he just, just, just a really obvious thing to say, but it's the most, that piece of music is the most widely owned avant-garde piece of music ever created, ever will be. You'll mm -hmm. never get that reach again for a piece of, of avant-garde art music, whatever you want to call it. I mean, that's a great trick to pull in a way. I mean, not a trick in a negative way, but to have this piece of music. And, it's, and everyone listening to this podcast will almost certainly have, have that sat in a room in their, in their house or whatever. That's an amazing way of looking at it, I think. The fact, I mean, I remember saying to someone years ago, I was trying to work on a track that was kind of outside of my style of the time, you know, whatever I thought was my style. And I kind of told somebody about it. And they said, uh, oh, it sounds interesting. But the question is, can you pull it off? Now, can you step into this other style and really pull it off? And I think, keeping with what you're saying, I think they do pull it off. And it's marvelous. There's a wonderful shape to it. Ultimately successful. 
By the way, I love Ian McDonald. He's one of my favorites. Tremendous. So another really strong part of your book is there just your discussion of the solo careers, which never get as much attention for obvious reasons in in Beatles books. Well, that is changing. So I was really delighted to read your your views and your kind of takes on John and Paul's work through the 70s and Paul's work beyond. And 1970, John and Paul, they start on the on obviously on these solo projects. Couldn't really get two more different albums than McCartney and Plasticano band, but in a way they're they're kind of similar as well. Um, How did they kind of get so far apart? And who do you think adapts to working alone the better at the start of the 70s? Well, just a quick response. I think John, you know, I think he was uh, very comfortable. Seems to be very comfortable. uh, And that first rush of creativity that comes off the Beatles. But he'd been working on his own anyway, right? I mean, he kind of was prepping for it. And Paul was sort of, you know, dropped there. It's interesting, though, even though they seem so different from one another, those two albums, they're very connected to what the band had been doing in the late 60s. It's a very much a logical outcome of what the, the Beatles were interested in. The thing with Paul, what did they say? Oh, it's not finished, right? Mm. So what's the problem with that? I, for me, it was as if he was, you know, he had really, the concept was he was inviting listeners into his home studio. And that thing that the Beatles would do, they had home studios in the mid-60s and late-60s. But now he was making that the focus, right? And there was an image from Anna Karenina when they go to visit a painter and they go to his studio. And he's ready for them, so he's going to show them this and this. But then there's these other works that are off to the side. I hope I'm remembering this correctly. It was a while ago. But that there are works in progress that are over here. And it just seemed so interesting to me that that was what Paul was doing. You get finished things. Uh, like maybe I'm amazed and every night and so on. Uh, but then you get these sketches and they're in many ways as interesting as the finished tracks, maybe more interesting because they give, they give insight onto his process. You're not there while he's doing it, but you, you're seeing something that is maybe still being worked on. And then of course he just decides to put it all out and say, have a look at this and listen to this and so on. John is still working at EMI but he takes a decidedly experimental approach, doesn't he? Even though he's producing, it's a very produced album, as they say, the Plastic Ono Band. And, uh, and at the same time, uh, he's open to these, or he's trying to get at these interesting ideas and possibilities. And if you listen to Yoko's accompanying album, you can really hear that, right? You can really hear that, the spirit of that. So um, again, going back to that evenly matched thing and, and trading, Uh, identities or wearing the mask of the other writer. Paul then shifts completely and he goes to Ram, right, which is state of the art. He's working top studios and so on. And John pairs things down a little bit. He brings things home and begins building his own studio. And it's interesting. I I don't know. um, When we look back, I think you were alluding to earlier the critical reception Mm. to some of this stuff. It's interesting how that becomes of the truth after a while, you know, and that becomes a, the truest description of what was going on. If anyone was there, it was very clear that this was, oh, yes, no, good, yeah. Listen, McCartney, sure, yeah, that's it, you know. Yes, uh, John, interesting, imagine, and so on, he's doing all I, well, I, I guess I was younger, too. I wasn't as aware of the critical reception. We were just listening to, to what was coming through on the recordings. 
Mm. So then, as you say, John's solo career certainly starts so strongly. And then after, not that it's related really, but the relocation into New York City and, and Paul then on the back of things like Wildlife and Red Rose Speedway, which now are seen as, again, they've been reassessed both those albums, Wildlife is this kind of has this kind of rustic charm to it, and Red Rose Speedway is a is a big commercial kind of experimental at the same time album. Um, but on the back of the Live and Let Die single, his solo career only goes one way into Band on the Run and into Speed of Sound, uh, Venus and Mars, and that huge tour, and then John's career. Un- unquestionably, things like Mind Games aren't as as strong maybe musically and they certainly aren't selling as much as Paul's albums are why do you think that they through the 70s they go in these two separate directions do you think that's something that they do or that the world the kind of audience is changing well I mean if even though as we said earlier they're evenly matched they have uh, different kind of flavors uh, things that they're interested in and we said that John was a little bit little bit older right mm. so there was a different sensibility paul was kind of at the right place to grab a hold of the 70s pop movement right and and it's interesting since he'd already been working on material outside the beatles those albums are kind of a, a peak plasticona band and um and imagine in particular i mean imagine is so good it's it's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, it's like the ultimate gallery. LP is gallery. It's it's so so balanced, so beautifully executed, and just wonderful. Um, and I wonder if there was a little bit. Okay, so now what? You know, now I've I've kind of done it here. You know, Paul is is looking ahead to other things. Uh, he's think I think he's thinking about what's what's going to be coming in the late seventies and in the eighties and so on. But one of the things about McCartney, like you you were talking about the popular success. It is baffling <laughs> because if you listen back to those Wings albums, they're so eccentric. Mm. They really, I mean, it's, you mentioned uh, uh, Red Rose Speedway. Again, he, co- he, he covers all the bases very well and that he has a huge, you mentioned Live and Let Die, which is around the time. And then My Love was a huge single here. It was huge. Uh, so it didn't even matter what was on the album. If you buy the album, then you, you hear all this curious experimentation that's going on. <laughs> so it's it's uh, it's quite remarkable. And then in, in the mid-70s, uh, John seems to want to now focus on family life. You know, we all know how important that is in terms of creativity. And in a sense, that was missing for him in many ways. And now he wanted to kind of really devote time to that. And Paul carried on, right? Here's your job. You continue doing this, and I'm going to take care of this over here. Okay. <laughs> Although, of course, he also had the family life. Uh, yeah. He managed to run the, both at the, at the same time, which was quite remarkable, really. Oh, my goodness. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, um, he was very comfortable with family life, right, uh, all the way through, and uh, then seemed to kind of somehow merge his professional and his family life. Did so rather successfully. You know, it's a real, uh, it's a real achievement, I think. There's a tiny, tiny interview clip. We're jumping forward now, but why not? There's a tiny interview clip which I posted ages ago on my on the Twitter feed for the podcast, and he's being interviewed in 1982, Paul, and it's into the French TV channel. And the guy says to him, "Do you go out and see concerts? Do you, you know, do you do you watch a lot of live music?" And he says he's 42 at this point, father of four. 
youngest would only have been about four or five. And he says, mm, do you know what I could do? But I could stay at home. I've got, I've got a fire going, the TV on, a drink in my hand and, and, and the children at my feet. And for him, that's what's important. And obviously, even in the early 80s, you know, you couldn't imagine Jagger saying that or Dylan, Paul Simon even, Robert Plant even, to go on to the next level. They would never talk like that. But looking back at that tiny clip now, that makes that kind of makes more sense in 2022, I think, than it did in 1982. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, how am I going to make all this work is a question you can hear him asking himself. You know, okay, there's great success over here. I have my satisfaction artistically and creatively and i have my family over here where i have to go home and live they really know me they really know what i'm like how do i bring all that together and how do i make it all work that's kind of the challenge for all of us isn't it i mean (laughs) he does it very well uh and it seems to me that was john's motivation in the mid-70s to really get that going to get that kind of that foundation or that place from which he could create or he could continue to create maybe bouncing off of his partner again like that. You know? So one of my favourite subjects to talk about is 1980 in Lennon McCartney's relationship. And you write really, really interestingly about McCartney 2 and Double Fantasy uh, in the book. And McCartney 2 clearly has an effect on on John. Coming up primarily, we know he heard that and was inspired. But I think that album, if you, you were talking about obscure, strange albums, McCartney 2 is, is right at the, at the top of that list. But that had an effect on John that, as far as we know, London Town, Back to the Egg, maybe don't have. What do you think it, it is about McCartney 2 that, that affects John and that kind of hits John that the other albums didn't do? Well, I, you know, I get the impression that even if he wasn't, like you said, there was a real reaction to McCartney too for John, right? I mean, he really, okay, let's go, right? Uh, but you, I always, you know, get the sense that he's kind of listening, even though he's not uh, publicly talking about it. And it's interesting to me, I said earlier about the Wings albums being experimental. London Town and Back to the Eager, I mean, maybe not as experimental as McCartney too, perhaps, but ambitious and unusual and adventurous. I mean, uh, and sometimes I, I hear, if you listen to London Town, what was my favorite song, I think, ultimately was Name and Address, which I just loved with the Elvis mm. uh, references, you know. I almost heard him go, hey, okay, John, here's Elvis. We're going to do, how about something like this? Would this work? And then, of course, the stuff on Back to the Egg, uh, you know, a, a big one for me is the broadcast. I'm just astonished. Mm. And again, that kind of experimentation that's on McCartney 1. And then you have things like uh, Arrow Through Me. Still wonder if we've really appreciated what's going on in that track, you know? And so I tend to view McCartney 2 as a, an outgrowth of that, that phase, where it really just sort of rises. Ah, now we've got it. Here's coming up, which is as contemporary as you can imagine. It's perfect for its time, you know? So I think it was a kind of a gradual buildup going on there. And once once he heard that, he said, "Okay, now let's 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 respond. Let's see what we can. <laughs> yeah. Let's see what we can come up with, uh, perhaps in connection with that. But um, it's extra. And then what is it? The the uh, the tracks that weren't included mm. on McCartney too. Secret Friend is my gosh. You know, again, Paul looking ahead." to a different kind of music thinking where pop music might go but it is it's 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 extraordinary yeah do you think that there was any kind of conscious 
reaching out via McCartney to to John in the sense that Yoko is known, as we know, through the 70s for making quite you know, experimental, avant-garde, interesting music. And this is maybe a little bit of Paul saying, OK, I can do that, John. Come on, come back, John. You know, he's not been around, as you say, for five years. I wonder mm. if there was anything conscious in that record that was aimed at John at all. One of the things I had read uh, as I was doing the research for the book was uh, a short story by Borges, Jorge Luis Borges, where he talked about two painters who seemed to rely on one another. They could be at great distances and they sometimes would, you know, weren't exactly sure that they got along all the time. But they seemed to rely on each other and they seemed to kind of derive energy from the other one's work that would drive then their own work. And I, I think... I'm just wondering if that ever ended mm. between Lennon and McCartney. I, I'd be willing to say that it, it didn't, that they were always kind of thinking that way. I mean, who else do you want to impress? I mean, who else? <laughs> this person who you were so evenly matched with and created so many wonderful works with, what, what do they think? Just tell me, give me some feedback, you know. Although needing separate canvases by that point, how can we work this out? How can we? How can we maybe continue? What's the what's maybe it's maybe the phone calls were going on, right? They were talking to one another and so on. I don't know, but I think John said it was mainly family stuff, right? They were just yeah. kind of chatting and so on. Uh, but would it have gotten deeply musical, artistic? Possibly, I think. So in that sense, yeah, I think in in a way he was he was. Uh, I mean, would you say that double fantasy then parts of it are uh, kind of reaching out to Paul? That's an excellent question. We must talk about double fantasy, um, which is all is always associated with what happened to John. But I think it's enough times passed now where we can look at it just as a record that that came out. I mean, there is that little triplicate of in starting over where he has the three winged references: "Don't let another day go by, my love." There's all that stuff. That I mean, that's got to be. Like you say, they're always thinking about each other. There's that thing that I saw on the internet somewhere where there's a picture in July of 1980, two pictures taken on the same day of Paul outside Abbey Road, posing with two Norwegian female fans, and John, same day in New York, posing with two uh, American fans, and they've both got the same jacket. They've both got a grey <laughs> A grey jacket on. Their haircut is identical. They've both got the same haircut. They've both mm. kind of got their arms slightly around the two fans, and it's the same day in 1980. I mean, it's it is crazy. Um, uh, I could think about that stuff for hours, uh, but that's that's what we're here for. But yeah, uh, double fantasy. It's an interesting one because it's so it, it's so different to McCartney too. John's side of things. I wonder what Paul kind of made of it in in those two weeks it was out. Well, it's it's interesting in that it's structured as a conversation, isn't it? Uh, a dialogue, and that's reached back to John and Paul, right? In that sense, so here's we're going to sort of mime that whole idea. What John had been doing it uh, earlier in the '70s with Yoko, right? There had been, but then it was on sec separate albums. Uh, they were collaborating, helping each other, and so on. Although Imagine is pretty close, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. But yeah, it, it seems to make what we're talking about in terms of the Lennon McCartney energy, dynamic, creative collaboration, the concept of the album, even though it's not John and Paul, here's what can happen. We can have a conversation uh, and we can structure our album that way. 
I, you know, I think uh, it's interesting where you begin to wonder what would have come after that. I think I, I keep wondering if it's more conversations. Uh, John and Paul having a conversation then, you know, here's one, here's another, here's one, what do you think of this? This is good, I'll help you with that. Uh, John and Yoko having another one. Maybe uh, ultimately we had uh, Paul and Yoko working on something together in the 90s, right? So uh, that seemed to be where it, was, where it was pointing to, that that was possibly what was going to happen. And so the, uh, the relationship between the two of them, as you said, on both sides of the Atlantic on the same day, wearing the same jacket and so on, that that was in a sense going to become a model for how uh, they could go forward and perhaps everyone else could go forward as well. Is it surprising, talking about going back to critical reaction, that will fantasy gets a, in the UK, especially gets quite a lukewarm reception? Was that surprising? Do you, do you think that, uh, you know, he, he'd been away for five years and then he comes back and people are like, well, they, they weren't as enamoured maybe as they should have been? Uh, I remember at the time, while well, I was studying, Mm. Uh, studying music at the time, and and I, my memory of it was that you know oh good, uh, what do you have? And then, and starting over was uh, very much a you could see it would be popular with different age groups and so on. But then other things, I'm losing you and so on, which you know I was late teens, so okay yeah let's let's do some of that you know yeah I mean I I was a little bit surprised. I mean I think it's is it is it as highly what is the over here, it's probably. I spoke to a guy called Paul Denoyer, who uh, you might know has written some excellent books on Paul, and he was working for a. I think it was the NME at the time. He would have been about kind of twenty four, twenty five. And I said to him, "Why did Double Fantasy get this reaction from the music press in the UK?" And he said, "Well, none of us were forty with a five year old." you know they were nowhere near that age it was quite still quite a young man's game in the music press at that point um mm -hmm. and then when you get to 40 45 50 maybe with a five-year-old etc uh, you know speak, speaking personally it certainly made more sense to me as i've got older and i've had a family so i think maybe it was the kind of tastemakers in the uk at the time weren't you know they weren't kind of up to speed of it but it made more sense maybe in the us where it felt like people who kind of growing up alongside the Beatles and they were all at that kind of age with that kind of family situation, maybe. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I had been thinking about with Double Fantasy was how diverse it was. I mean, if you look at it, it's kind of, we were talking about the White Album before and there you have a tremendous variety of styles, right? And approaches. So you have Yoko doing the, what sounds like new wave, uh, very powerful. And you have John doing starting over, which sounds like, uh, a throwback to the 50s or the perhaps the early 60s and then you have what the acoustic kind of things well, well I guess you uh, maybe beautiful boy I'm thinking of as an acoustic mm. type of song it's a very diverse album that seems consistent with the Beatle approach uh, and yet for some reason uh, maybe for the you know for the very reasons you said it simply didn't connect uh, I liked the stripped down version of it did you hear that it yes yes very, very interesting still powerful Maybe there's too much production on the released version. I think that was the rationale there. Yeah, there's so many different kinds of songs on it. <laughs> yeah, which which obviously, and even then, it sounds so different to Milk and Honey as well. If you think about Milk and Honey, which we have to assume would have been the next the next album as as we know it now, it's a wholly different record, Milk and Honey, to Double Fantasy. But still with that that theme, right? 
I do remember at the time hmm. that the talk on the street was, I'm always using that phrase, the word on the street was, that they could get back together, they could write together, is one of the problems with wings, perhaps that Paul is trying to do everything. Mm. And I know at the speed of sound, he's um, he tries to bring the band in and make it more of a collaborative thing. Uh, but on London Town, he's working with Denny a bit, right? And and then a new band on Back to the Egg. But still, he's he doesn't ha get to lean on that conversation idea, the back and forth idea. He has to kind of conjure it all up. And is double fantasy then an answer uh, or a, a possible solution? to that problem that's being offered. Mm -hmm. No, let's, let's, let's converse. Let's, <laughs> it's interesting because moving through the book, obviously you, you, again, you talk really insightfully through Paul's solo record, right up until the, the kind of the current day, the collaboration side of things. The only time really that he goes for it is with Elvis Costello for Flowers in the Dirt. And that's when those mid eighties albums and Broad Street, well, whilst I think were unfairly maligned, I don't think you could argue that they were they were hugely strong. I think he he reaches out to Elvis Costello, and those demos, those acoustic demos of those ten or twelve songs, are just fantastic. But he never really does it again. In great contrast, bringing in the third wheel. In great contrast to George, that could sit in a Wilburys, a travelling Wilburys situation, so happily and work with these great people. You couldn't put Paul into that kind of, and you probably couldn't put John in, I don't think, into that kind of scenario either. Yes, uh, with each other, yes. Um, yeah, it's interesting that uh, the Costello uh, idea, um, I was very taken with Once Upon a Long Ago, and that's not out of the collaboration with Costello, but they did a song called Back on My Feet, which I think was the B-side. Mm, yeah. Great song. Yeah, and when I heard that, I was just knocked out. I didn't know Elvis was working on it. But all of those lyrics uh, that get added in that chorus part at the end, yes, whether it, it didn't seem to work as well on a big album, but as you point out, the conversation idea that was happening was very, very strong. And it, and it did uh, great things for Costello in that period, too. I think there's, there's records, um, even things that he didn't do with, with Paul. Uh, there's a song called uh, Georgie and Her Rival, which I think is from the album that follows uh, Spike, mm. Mighty Like a Rose, is that mm. the, the time? And I just thought, wow, this is extraordinary. And I began to wonder over time, I said, oh, is this, is this from the experience with Paul? Is this, I, I'm not sure if it was written afterward. I think it was, it was released afterwards, but uh, there's a sharpness to it that I really mm. like. Uh, and just as you say on the demos, then you really get to hear it because same again, conversation. Why didn't it work as, as, a, as a, in terms of a major, big album release. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I don't know if they had any kind of personal issues. They don't seem to have. And he did, there was a, a, a track or two that went on to Off the Ground, the, the album from 93, the next McCartney album. But yeah, and, and then since then, he's he's been hesitant, hasn't he, to work with anyone like that. I was thinking when you were mentioning that earlier, I was thinking of the uh, Chaos and Creation sessions where he works with Godrich. Uh, that would be an exception, I think, right, where he's got somebody who's really, but he's producing, right? I think at the time, if I remember correctly, Paul was quoted as, he was still interested in making those kinds of eclectic albums and 
wasn't confident that that was going to be possible with with Elvis Costello. A different sensibility in in uh, album production and so on. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Chaos and Creation because that's probably my favourite. Maybe, maybe my favourite of the last. I mean, that album's whatever it is, you know, seventeen years old now. But of the kind of recent, in inverted commas, McCartney albums. I think that's a tremendous album. I think yeah. the some of the kind of sound beds that Godrich gets are incredible. And, but even then, I think there was some disharmony between those two, as there had been, of course, with Hugh Padgham in a kind of previous lifetime and Press to Play. Oh, Press to Play, yeah. Press to Play is interesting, isn't it? I find all of those records interesting that followed his decision to become a painter. I mentioned Once Upon a Long Ago, which is a little bit later than Press to Play, right? But those drawings on the inner sleeve of uh, <laughs> Press to Play, or I'm sorry, on the fold-out, right? It was on the fold-out, yeah. That fascinated me uh, because it was like, wow, he's, he's drawing a picture of the sound here. It's, it's kind of formal, you know, in that he's placing things in the, in the sound picture. And yet it's colorful. He's like reaching for color. Some of the ways he's 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 drawing the images around the, the, the words that are describing the instruments look as if he's going after the sound. He's trying to find a way to, to make a picture of the sound. But yeah, that was also, uh, you, you said Hugh Padgham, but it was Eric Stewart as well. That was another situation where, uh, like Costello, where they were going to work on it and in fact went into the album and then basically just said, okay, some good stuff, some really interesting stuff. One wonders if it's a, a difficulty reconciling the collaborative compositional relationship with the album recording relationship, mm. somehow making that all flow. Uh, the Beatles could do it, but it's a tricky thing to manage, getting that flow going all the way through. So um, just to draw to a, a conclusion, Tom, the question that I always like to ask any author at the end of a project like this is, did writing the book change your perspective on the subject? So in, in this case, did you have any kind of previously held views on John and Paul and their relationship and their their, their creativity that, that changed or developed now that you've, you've finished the book? It made me appreciate the relationship more. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier that uh, a number of years ago, I, I fell into that trap where you start comparing them to one another, you know. And there was actually a conversation with a good friend and a colleague where I was taking the John side and he was taking the Paul side. I was, I was uh, stressing John and he was stressing the importance of Paul. And it was friendly. It was interesting. It was one of those productive kind of debates, you know. But ultimately, it kind of led me, after a while, I just said, well, you know, what's with this energy that's going on between the two of them? You know, uh, certain questions would come up, I guess, like what is the nature of collaboration? What are those personal styles or the perception of personal styles that we, we mentioned earlier? Where does that come from? And so I, I began to focus on that more and more. And that was, you know, I think I was doing that unconsciously. And then the book sort of grew out of that. It's you have this energy and it's like a drama, you know, it's like you're staging a play and they're the two main characters. And then, of course, you have the other two characters, you have George and Ringo, and they can that energy flow that's going on, they can plug into that, you know, or they can add to it, they can draw on it. And it's, it's something to think about because it, it really kept the band going for years. As I said earlier, it didn't seem to diminish. It was still there. 
right? that edge was still there. Ultimately, I think the experience of writing the book uh, suggested to me that the distinction between Beatles, post-Beatles, uh, Beatles as a band, and solo Beatles, might not be that important in the long run. That's the way I approach this, but I'm not sure if it was a conscious thing or if I was just sort of going in that direction because of my experience. I was just sort of viewing them all as one continuous gesture. All of the works that were created, including George and Ringo, I was just kind of thinking about early 70s Ringo albums and, and the George material. and just So that's what I'm wondering if we're, we're going to think of it ultimately, not as Beatles and solo Beatles, but one gesture that just kind of involves the Beatle period, involves the solo Beatle period, involves, uh, I mean, where are we going to go from here, right? What's going to be the, the, the true post-solo Beatle period? You can already feel the effects. You mentioned Nigel Godrich earlier and that kind of, that wonderful blending of sound, you know. It's, it's kind of liberating in a way, you know. I don't feel as constrained by the, oh, that's the Beatle period. Oh, here's the solo John, solo Paul, solo George, solo Ringo. It's just all one flow, one dynamic flow, if that, if that makes sense. It does. It's quite a, a hopeful and positive way to end our conversation, Tom. So uh, thanks, yeah, thanks so much for coming on and thanks so much for your time. It's been really enjoyable talking to you. Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on.